I love figs. I literally do love figs. Anything fig, that's not a joke. They're nature's candy. And the ones that Valley Fig Growers are producing in the San Joaquin Valley taste like pure California sunshine. They let their sun-dried figs fully ripen on the tree. Then they harvest them when they're at their peak flavor and sweetness. And best of all, Valley Fig Growers is a grower-owned fig cooperative. So that means when you buy their brands, Orchard Choice and Sunmade California Dry Figs, you're directly supporting the farmers who grow them. So you can snack on figs with an easy conscience. Learn more and get some dry fig recipe inspirations at valleyfig.com. Every restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment. To cry, to confide in a friend, to collect your composure. It's the place where the pressure to be in control falls away. Where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff. And in my walk-in, we have the conversations you don't hear anywhere else. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm El Simone Scott. Welcome to the walk-in. Hey, Elle, it's Patty Himmies, and I can't believe that I'm finally going to be with you in the walk-in. I have so many new things to share with you. I have a new cookbook coming out in a couple months, and I also have a new season of Patty's Mexican Table and all the places we went. I can't wait to share it all with you. I don't know about you, but... I've been watching a lot of really good cooking TV, and these days, I've been loving and favoriting Patty Yenich. Patty is a staple in American cuisine and Mexican cooking. Her show, Patty's Mexican Table, has won three James Beard Awards, and as of today, we officially know that they are Emmy winners. Nominated, nominated. Oh, nominated. Well, let's just claim it as winnership. Patty's a cookbook author um, who explores sharing Mexican cuisine as her life's work. And Patty, you've cooked in the White House for President Barack Obama? Yes, that was such a highlight in my life, Elle. I think there's two times when my kids have been like, whoa, you know, because I have three boys. And there's two times when I've been able to get them to wow me. One was when I cooked for President Obama and his guests for a Cinco de Mayo celebration at the White House, which was such a dream. And the other one was when I cooked with Elmo um, some guacamole. And and I have to tell you, like, I would just love to be sitting between Barack Obama and Elmo any day and every day. <laughs> I'm impressed. That's a stellar lineup right there. Well, in addition to that, you were also named one of the National Immigration Forum's Keeper of the American Dream, which is such a huge honor. And, you know, that award is given to someone who embodies the spirit of immigrant achievement and contribution to the well-being of immigrants in the United States. That's a huge, huge work. With that being said, Patty, I welcome you with full open arms into the walk-in. Oh, thank you, Elle. Thank you for welcoming me into your walk-in. This is a treat. Okay, Patty, let's talk a little bit about who taught Patty to cook. Oh. I know this is an exciting story. I want to hear about your legacy of food. And when did you start cooking? How early? A lot of us start early. What was your first food memory? I come from a family who's obsessed with food and a family 
that shows emotions and caring and nurturing through food. I've always been a ferocious eater. I have a gigantic appetite that scares my three growing sons and my husband as much as it's always scared my mother. <laughs> I'm the fourth of four girls and she always used to tell me since I was like five years old, Patty, you can't eat as much as your father, you know, like <laughs> your body's going to take revenge on you one day. I experience and get to know the world through eating it and driving it. I'm obsessed with feeling the road as well. It's just like through eating and through driving, I guess one really gets to know the places. Um, and I think the first time that I ever cooked was in my family's home growing up. I was assigned with making scrambled eggs um, one Sunday when my grandparents used to come for brunch I have a lot of enthusiasm for spices and flavor. And I remember my mom just gave me a bowl, gave me some eggs, showed me where the salt was, said, here's the butter. You can choose butter or oil. Go and make the scrambled eggs for everybody. And I opened up the cupboard to take more of the salt. And I saw all of the spices, you know, the star anise and the thyme and the rosemary and the seeds. And I saw yellow, black, brown, green, you know, and I started throwing everything into the eggs thinking, how can I make these better? And of course, those eggs were inedible. And I always say that since then, I've learned to tame my enthusiasm a little, which is hard because I, I have a lot of enthusiasm for food. My three older sisters jumped into cooking very early on, professionally. And I think I owe it to them. All we talk about with my sisters is about food. One went into the restaurant business early on and became a pastry chef. The other one now owns a restaurant in Mexico City. The other one focuses on vegetarian lifestyle and fashion. And, and I was the only one who wasn't in food. I wanted to be an academic. I was a political analyst and I jumped into food much later. I know your grandparents are of Eastern European descent. How much food fusion happened when you were young? Because I would imagine you're only second generation Mexican. So I would imagine that like some of that crossover was very much a part of the way you ate as a child. Absolutely. It's been crucial. My grandparents on both sides were refugees fleeing different kinds of persecution, some from Poland, uh, from the programs, some from the Second World War, some uh, from Austria, from Czechoslovakia, and they were all trying to make it to the U.S. and were never able to, to make it into America. And they all found their way into Mexico, and Mexico really welcomed them. And they were able to make Mexico their home and grow roots in Mexico and honor the places they came from. I had a Polish grandmother and an Austrian grandmother. They both really gave me an example of how you build your bridges and tie the pieces of your identity together in the kitchen because they had everything they had growing up. And they Mexico is such a warm, welcoming country, not only in personality and culture, but in food too. All of the Mexican spices and seasonings and chilies only embellished their food and made it richer and warmer and more festive. 
my Polish grandmother came from a very, very, very humble upbringing and her food was very, very, very simple. But just by the addition of some Mexican chiles or spices, or she used to make baked goods just by using the Mexican chocolate and vanilla and the true cinnamon instead of the cassia cinnamon. And my Austrian grandmother was more, she came from a different background that had more sophisticated cooking in it. And they were just such an example of how things that wouldn't make sense, like in your mind about the pieces of your identity do make sense in the kitchen. And so I learned from them. So, you know, I come from a long line of immigrants and my grandparents were able to make Mexico their home. And my parents were uh, born in Mexico and my family is all in Mexico. I was, of course, born and raised in Mexico and consider myself fully Mexican. And I think people just don't know how rich and diverse Mexico is. Like people usually think that Mexico is that cosmic race that they taught us in public schools in Mexico in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, which they made you believe that Mexico was a combination of Spanish and Mexican indigenous. But they forgot to include the Africans, the Eastern Europeans, the Lebanese, the Syrian, the Italians, the Asians. I mean, Mexico is a huge melting pot and Now there's so many historical and culinary new studies, you know, the Afro-Mexico, the Asian Mexico, the Jewish Mexico, the Middle Eastern Mexico. And so you can see that throughout Mexico, that um, Mexico's regional cuisines are truly not only a different kind of a mix between Spanish and native Mexican, but also of the other very important and strong immigrant waves. I was just talking to a friend of mine about, um, she's Jamaican, right? And we were talking about how lo mein is such a huge dish in Jamaica, right? It's super popular. Like you can almost find it at almost any Jamaican restaurant in New York City, at least one lo mein dish. And, you know, we were laughing about how good it is, you know, at Jamaican restaurants in <laughs> New York. Some, I know. Some, some better than like <laughs> other places where you think it might make sense to buy lo mein, right? Um, and she was just like, you know, that just speaks to like the very diverse Asian community that's in Jamaica. And in Jamaica, if you're born in Jamaica, you're Jamaican. It doesn't matter if you're Chinese or Middle Eastern. Like if you're born there, you are of that place, you know, and I, I think it says we have a lot to learn from countries that are so welcoming of diverse cultures and how They leave room for those cultures to make their own personal connection to their new homeland, right? Like, I think that's oh my gosh, super I important. I couldn't agree more. You know, for a while, I was like, oh, this is so confusing, you know? Because <laughs> we, we tend to think, at least in Mexico, in, I don't know, we, we think in very romantic terms that you're loyal to one. And then you realize, I always tell my boys as well, that you realize that you can have roots in different places and that not because you grow roots in one place, it means that the other ones evaporate. They're, they can be just as strong, but you do have double blessings with those roots because you have the culture from the different places, the flavors, the 
the cuisine, the traditions, everything. But you do have double responsibility or sometimes triple. So you carry a bigger burden in your shoulder because you have to do right by Mexico. You have to be a good Mexican and say, you guys, it's okay for me to be here. I kind of understand why, you know, you would feel like you're now a woman of two worlds, you know, why you would feel torn because we have this responsibility of representing our culture, but also being authentic in that, you know, and not being our own erasure in the world, you know, like this is where I am, but this is where I am from. You know, it's like being in it, but not of it, you know? Oh my God, I love what you're saying. It's walking that double path, which I think, I mean, I try to do it in my show, of course, as I go to Mexico, learn about people, food, places, and really try to bring the microphone as you're doing now, you know, to others and let them say who they are, what they eat, what they want, how they live. And then I come to my kitchen and then tell people how they can learn from those experiences and those foods and enrich their homes, right? And then I've tried to do the same with a new cookbook that I have coming out in November, which I try to walk those two paths. You know, it's Treasures of the Mexican Table, where I try to bring all the classic or many of the classic dishes that people yet don't know about, that are heirlooms that have passed the test of time, that are beloved. It can be in little towns or little regions, or there may be family recipes that are really, really classic and have passed, passed, passed from one hand to the other. And I'm bringing them to people here saying, Here's more classics. Here's more of our things that can enrich yours. And you know what? You don't have to make them how I made them. You don't have to make them how I learned to make them. If I learn how to make chilorio and they eat it in a taco, you want to put it on a pizza? You put it on your pizza. Who cares? Because I really can't stand it when people are policing the other for authenticity. Oh my God. I could tell you stories. I was one time in Tucson, okay? And I was eating all their amazing Mexican food because they have outstanding Mexican food. And there's some people who say, no, Mexican is only Mexican south of the border, you know, or only authentic if made by Mexican hands, you know, or it needs to have this or that. And these Mexican cook shared these Nutella tamales, And they were unbelievable. I posted a tweet about them and said, these Nutella tamales here in Tucson from so-and-so are so amazing. Oh my God, Twitter went wild. People started (laughs) saying that why are white people appropriating Mexican food? That tamales are... And I'm like, oh, now because we're Mexican, we can't have Nutella? You know, like you're going to tell us what to do. Go into any bakery, any bakery, any panaderia in Mexico. And I'm not telling you Mexico City, which is more metropolitan. Go into Valle de Bravo, Puebla, Toluca, Sonora. People love Nutella in Mexico. We're obsessed with Nutella. And we have the (laughs) jars in Spanish, you know, that say what it is. So now you're telling me we can't. 
Like, we can't have hot dogs. We can't have pizza. Like, we know we all have to kneel on the ground and make our own masa. I can't use masa harina, you know? Like, the food police. <laughs> anyway, I, I just got fired up there. I'm sorry. No, that's it's very true. And I absolutely share that passion. But it's a very difficult, um, great area, though, right? Like, very. it's almost as if you can't be a person who respects the food completely and then have another liking. It's a very fine line with the Twitter people. But, you know, they're not the food police. We're not going to give them that title. Ellen Patty says you cannot police our plates. We (laughs) won't let you do it. Exactly. I think as long as you're respectful, you know, of the things that you're cooking with, you acknowledge, you know, you give credit to where credit is due. And, you know, it's always better if you're going to use an ingredient that you're not familiar with to learn about it, you know, how people use it, where it comes from. And then I say, if you want to play, like play, you know, and so make your tacos or whatever you want your tacos to be. I agree. Okay, so outside of Nutella tamales, which sounds amazing, what's one of your favorite dishes? Like, it can be one of your own created. It can be from your new cookbook coming out in November. Um, I love that plug. What's the name of the book? I've been working so hard on this book. I think it's been almost four years. Ellie was so ambitious. The name of the book is Treasures of the Mexican Table, Classic Recipes, Local Secrets. And it really is food that I've encountered through my travels in Mexico. I think the more years that I've been away from Mexico, the more nostalgic I get and the hungrier I get every time I go home and I want to learn more and I want to explore more. And it's all these dishes that I found that people yet don't know much about outside of Mexico that are as approachable, as delicious, are as accessible But they also, I love dishes with a good story. Mm -hmm. And so all of these dishes have personalities behind them and stories and lots of uses. I would say that one of my favorite dishes that I can eat anytime, all the time, morning, lunch, dinner, whatever, are enchiladas. I think Mm -hmm. enchiladas are (laughs) like the epitome of Mexican cooking and personality. First of all, it's like the most saucy, dressy way to honor the corn tortilla, which we love corn tortilla so much. And I think corn tortillas are now universal. Like everybody knows a taco, right? And so you can take an enchilada pretty much wherever you want. Like you can stuff an enchilada with chicken, with cheese. You can make them with Swiss chard and potatoes, with chorizo, with nopales, with whatever. I'll take all of those. One of all of those, please. So this is one of the most interesting parts of the walk-in conversation for me. This part of the conversation is called FIFO, and FIFO stands for first in, first out, right? This is what we call that when we rotate all the new things to the front and put all the old things to the back. So we kind of do that here where we would love for you to tell us about what has been going on with you since your show started, some new things that are coming in the works for you. Kind of like give us a little backstory and then bring us to the present. Tell us about all the fantastic things that are getting ready to happen for you. Of course. I worked very hard through the pandemic to get the new season of Patty's Mexican Table on course. And we just came back from going to Jalisco, where we're doing season 10. So 
you know, as I was sharing, every new season, I try to go to a different place and bring different stories to the front. And we had done already some northern state stories like Sinaloa, Sonora, Baja. Now I really wanted to go inside, in the heart of Mexico. Most of the Mexican migrants in the U.S. come from Jalisco. There was a study that shows what is the most Google state from Mexicans in the U.S., and it is Jalisco. So a really big part of the Mexican immigrant population in the U.S. is from there. So I really wanted to go there and connect, you know, the bridges and the themes. So Jalisco is the home of birria, which now seems to be having a moment. Jalisco is the home of tequila. Jalisco is the home of menudo, of tortas ahogadas. Jalisco is the home of mariachis. Oh, so that sounds like where I need to be moving to. Exactly, exactly. So I really wanted to go to a place like that that had like so much content. So it was challenging because we went to film, I think we were flying into Jalisco end of April. So the, the pandemic was much heavier than, than now, but we all went vaccinated and we created like these little production bubbles wherever we moved. But that being said, you know, hopping on a plane after being locked in here for 13 months was kind of challenging. I'm used to hugging people, Elle. I like people, you know. I like to hug people. I like to share bowls and plates and eat from your spoon. And, like, it's so anti-me to have you have your bowl. I have my bowl. It's like, what do you mean? I need to taste (laughs) the food you're putting in your mouth. You know, it has to be that exact same bite. My dad taught me that when you were telling me about um, who did I learn to cook from, I have to say a lot has uh, been my sisters and all of the cooks in Mexico who have shared their kitchens with me. But my dad, my dad taught me how to eat. I mean, he will be building himself a taco with the same exact things that you're building yourself a taco with. And he will do that last sprinkle of salt and he will bite into it. You bite into yours, and he will tell you, well, mine is better than yours. And you're like, (laughs) no. You take a bite of his taco, and it is a thousand times better. (laughs) So this whole, like, you, your thing, me, my thing, you, your space, me, my space, is so antipathy. How do you balance traveling abroad, filming the show, writing the book, being the mom, how do you do it? How do you do it? I have one dog, one job. I can't, I can't do the things. Please tell me how to do it. I don't do it either. And I am not even pretending (laughs) to be able to do it. I don't. It's overwhelming. It's challenging. It's, Uh, But I realize it is what it is, you know, and I do not have it all balanced. I do not have it all organized. I juggle with uh, so many things, but I would much rather have it this way than any other way. And I will take on the challenges. And I feel like there is a lot that I do give up, you know, like 
I could see more friends, I could socialize more, but with the choices I've made, it's really like my priorities are my kids, and now we have a dog who, oh my God, I am so in love with. <laughs> my husband says that he's now behind my kids and my dog in, in favorites, <laughs> but I always tell him that no, no, that he's on at the very top. You know, it's that in work, which I love the work that I do, that we do, and as you know, there's never enough in the kind of work that we do. There's never enough content. There's never enough stories. There's never enough that you can do when you don't have like a formal boss that says, you know, it's this time to that time. You can always be doing more research about, you know, the people who you're going to be talking to. You can always round up your stories more. Anyway, just to say that, no, I don't balance it. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Well, we're in good company. <laughs> we're figuring it out from day to day. Um, figuring it out. And I try to exercise whenever I can. Like they ask me, how do you stay in shape? I'm like, I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm trying. It's from chasing the dog. It's from running to pick up the kids. It's the, it's the exercise that comes with the day to day life. That's how you do it. Yeah. When you left your political analyst work, did you already have children? Were you already married with children by that time? I did. I did. I already had two L and I was, I had just found out I was pregnant with my third mm -hmm. and it was not the right time. Definitely. It was not possibly <laughs> Is it ever? a good time. Is it ever though? It's never a good time. You just Is do it. Is it ever? Um, my husband was panicked. You know, I had two young kids. I was like, am I really doing this? Because I didn't even know where I was heading into. But I, I get emails and calls, I think, more about switching careers and change than recipes, to be honest. And I always tell people, like, just do it. Because you never know, as we were talking about, you know, what obstacles you will run into. You can't have things already figured out. Like, I think that's a very, like, um, like a thing that's happened in the latest decade here where people say, oh, you have to build a path of where you want to be in the next five years or in the next 10 years. And then you start accomplishing those goals. And I, I find that that can be very paralyzing. The Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program has been helping food and beverage entrepreneurs get their dream businesses off the ground since 2008. They've given out millions of dollars in loans and provided coaching for thousands of small business owners. But when I asked founder Jim Cook what his favorite part of the program is, his answer is simple, the people. A woman who was among our first recipients, Carlino Guerra is her name, and her family's from the Caribbean, so she's first generation, and she was really, really passionate about baking. And ultimately, she got big enough, she was able to open her own store. And her family basically renovated the store. They did the demolition, they did a bunch of the construction, and the mayor of Boston, actually, Marty Walsh, showed up for this opening in Blue Hill Avenue in, in Mattapan. And it was just so cool. Brewing the American Dream turns good ideas into brick-and-mortar realities. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. 
You can also get info about upcoming events on Facebook at Brewing the American Dream or on Instagram at Sam Adams BTAD. I started out as a social worker, and like so many other people in this industry, I decided later in life that I wanted to pursue my culinary dreams. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is made for people like us. Their programs are flexible enough for all kinds of students, from the career changer, like me, to the experienced industry professional looking to add new skills. With their curriculum, you get it all, the classic culinary training, plus the business foundation to take you to the next level. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. The Wall Slide. Okay, Patty, this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. This segment is called the wall slide. And the wall slide is sometimes that defining moment in our lives that can be completely horrible and teaches us a very strong lesson, or it can be like absolutely fantastic and still be like our aha teachable moment. I would love to hear about yours, but I do think I want to start with your job as a political analyst, right? Like we actually have a lot in common. I am also the big eater of my family, by the way. I just want to say that. Do you remember this video game from the 80s, Pac-Man? Remember that? So my (laughs) family used to call me Pac-Baby because I used to eat so much food. When I was just so small, I would eat so much food. So still to this day, they call me Pac-Baby. Like I eat all the food. (laughs) My first dish cooking was also eggs. I just wanted to share that. What kind of eggs did you make, Elle? Um, My first eggs were scrambled eggs. Like, my uncle gave me butter and salt and pepper, and he was like, do your thing. That's all I did for a very long time. But I learned how to cook eggs in different ways, right? So after I learned how to scramble, I went from scramble to omelets. And then I would, like, like you did with the spices, I just put everything in the refrigerator in the omelet until I learned that some things don't omelet right? Like some meats are too heavy to omelet. Some cheeses don't taste good in omelets, but I would, anything we had for dinner the night before, I would try to put it in an omelet and serve it for breakfast. So sometimes it was good. Sometimes not so much. Meatloaf shouldn't necessarily go in an omelet, but we'll talk about that at another time. (laughs) Um, But also um, I started in a whole different career and came into cooking in my 30s as well. Wait, what were you doing before? I was a social worker um, before. Yeah, Yeah, for about eight years, um, almost 10 years in some form of social work. I was either teaching youth independent living skills. I did that for a long time. I worked in foster care. I worked with in geriatrics with um, for elder care. And then finally, my very last job in social work was I was running a shelter for women who were without homes in New York City. I do love helping people. I do love that part, but my passion is cooking. So that was my transition space. And it was challenging. So I would imagine for you feeling that you were political and not like your other food family members, um, having that realization probably it may have seemed easy or transitional. I'll say that. I won't use the word easy, but I would imagine that there were some bumps along the way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, many bumps. There are still many bumps. I think we can't do without those bumps. (laughs) Many times it's really good not to know about those bumps ahead of time, because if not, you just freeze in your tracks. But 
And I wasn't very political ever at all. What I wanted to be was an academic. So I wanted to study social sciences and philosophy at Mexico's public university, UNAM. But when I finished high school, that university, as it happens many times in Mexico, was on strike. So I went into another university that some friends had said had a great social sciences program that was very hard to get into. And I had gone to a very easy school growing up. And, and so I thought, you know, it's going to be a challenge for me to try to get in. I applied. I don't know how I got in. And after I got in, like six months into it, and it had everything I loved. It had history, sociology, culture, language, philosophy. And um, like half a year into it, they changed the director, they changed the program, called it political science instead of social sciences, took all the classes that I liked out and put political science, public policy, statistics, economics in. But the thing is, I loved the challenge of being in a place where I had to work very hard because I had gone to a school where I had to study zero. And I really liked it that it was in a very different part of, of Mexico City where I had grown up. So I was learning so much from the students and the teachers that I just kept on going. And by the time I finished I wanted to specialize in how to strengthen democratic institutions in Mexico and civic culture. And, you know, in Mexico, you don't have a lot of the non-for-profit organizations, the grassroots. Like in Mexico, you have a lot of strong families, but you don't have like the social or institutional organizations that help. So I wanted to focus on that. I was a very big idealist and I thought I could do it by being an academic and a teacher in I moved to the U.S., then did a master's in Latin American studies, started working in a think tank, you know, doing analysis on policy research, and I was trying to get into the themes I liked, but I kept growing frustrated and frustrated because I felt like I was just researching and writing the same thing all over again, you know, and that I wasn't making an impact to anyone on any possible way. And I was pregnant with my third, and... After thinking about it for like a year and a half, you know, I had already studied. I already had gotten a, a scholarship to do the master's and I already had the job and I was contributing to our family. And I felt like I couldn't just step aside. And then what, what was I going to do? You know, so I took a leap of faith went into cooking school at night and thought I'm just gonna give it my all and I always think about that moment where you know everybody in my family was like what are you doing you are the intellectual <laughs> of the family we worked so hard to put you through college are you now going to rinse pots and pans like your sisters already you know are doing food stuff like you are supposed to do this you know academic thing and I was going on a route that had no set path. I didn't know where it was going to be headed. So I thought instead of doing political analysis, I wanted to do food writing so that I could, through the lens of food, share the stories of Mexico and Mexicans. Because I kept running into all these myths and preconceptions about who we are Mexicans, what we look like. Like, what's my last name? Why are my eyes blue? You know, why do we look like this? Why do we eat like that? And I kept thinking people just don't know the Mexico, don't know the people. And so I thought through food, I'm going to try to open a window. And that's how I 
I switched careers, but for everything that I did once I switched careers, I had to take the difficult path. I was going to say that for the question before, the one where you said, like, what was a moment in life where things really changed? I think, yeah, like switching from political analysis to cooking was, of course, radical and was very important in my life and my career. Eh, But I have to say that there was something else that happened that really made me rethink everything that I was doing. It was about like four or five years ago that I thought I had thyroid cancer. And I've never talked about this publicly, you know, health, but I I had a nodule in my thyroid and they never knew if it was good or bad while it was in my throat. And because some people you can tell with a biopsy quickly if it's positive or negative. And I always came indetermined. All of my tests come indetermined. Like I've been pregnant three times and every one of my pregnancies, you know, when they do the tests to see if your baby is healthy or not, they always came indetermined. It was crazy. It turned out I was really afraid of the surgery because the doctor that I went to see told me, you know, he was a thyroid surgeon. When I went to see him, he said, you know, of 5,000 surgeries that I've done, only three have lost their voice because the thyroid is very close to their vocal cords. And I leave for talking, Ella. Like, my profession is just talking. And so I was like, "What? what? You know? And so... It took a long time for me to have the guts to do that surgery. It turned out that I didn't have cancer. I had just a nodule. But the two, three years that I was worried about it and then the surgery and then, you know, that really put a scare and made me rethink um, a lot of things, I guess. That completely resonates with me. You know, I'm a two-time cancer survivor, ovarian cancer. I did not know. Yeah, I actually had a second reoccurrence last summer. During COVID. And like you, when the doctor was explaining the surgery that I had to have, he basically was like, only 2% have the worst case scenario. And I panic, you know, like we automatically put ourselves in that very small percentage window, right? And I also completely understand how having something like that happen to you really changed the way you start to navigate the world, right? Yeah. It makes you think about all the things that you didn't do, all the things that you should do, and then also all the things that you could lose if you were of that 3%, right? Like it really helps you to put it all into perspective. That's exactly actually where I am in my life right now. Like I'm really deeply evaluating what I should really be doing with my life and my time. You know, just like what more can I be doing in the world? How much more work can I be doing in the world? How can I better be representing Black women, Black people? How can I be bringing forth the history of Black food? Like it all really just like something like that. You're so, so right. Really just kind of brings it home. It brings it home. That is, you want to talk about a wall slide moment, Patty? I'm sliding the wall yes. with you, girl. That was That's one of them for sure. Having that kind of moment in your life is one. It is yeah. one. One you don't forget. You don't soon forget, you know? No. For sure. I agree. Um, Okay. Oh, wow. Ooh, Patty, me and you, girl, we're right here. (laughs) (laughs) That took me on a little bit of emotional. We have to... No, 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 no. no. And I'm with you. And I have to say, like, after that, Elle, I was like, 
okay, you know, I love Paris Mexican table. I love the show. Every year I go back to Mexico to a different region. Now I'm going to go to the regions that nobody wants to go to, that nobody wants to talk about, where people really have no microphone. So people are talking about El Chapo and Narcos in Sinaloa. I knew so many amazing people from Sinaloa, farmers, hard workers that are so fed up with that conversation. And I went down there, you know? I'm with you. Like, what can you do to bring the microphone to people who can't share or tell their stories? Or where can we learn more? It used to be that I liked going to places that I knew when I first switched careers. I liked going to places that I already knew because I was nostalgic about them and I wanted to share about them. And things completely changed. Now I really want to go and learn and grow and share things that I didn't know that are teaching me to be a better human. With every step, I want to share that growth. I see so much richness in showing yourself vulnerable and not knowing things and just learning things. It's kind of part of the responsibility. A moment in the walk-in. So this is what I like to call a moment in the walk-in. It's kind of a moment where we talk about something that could be helpful to the listener, right? Maybe someone who finds themselves in similar shoes that we're in and they're trying to make a decision, or we're just giving someone some advice that could help them along the way. We never know who's listening, right? So it can be it can be helpful, useful in all the ways. I was most interested in your story because... Like you, I also worked as a production assistant before getting to where I am in TV. We have a lot of similar background stories. And so I have a lot of young friends who are looking to come through the TV film industry working as production assistants. Probably can't see the light of day right now because they don't want you to. But like, when did you know that you were going to be on camera and that you could be your full authentic self? Like, because... Patty's Mexican table, like that is authentico, right? Like that's saying, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. And this is the food that, you know, we beautifully execute in my country. That's some full authenticity that a lot of us don't get an opportunity to really express. Like, when did you know that it was going to happen? Tell us your story of transition from PA to superstar Patty. And when real Patty was able to show up at the table, no pun intended. Yeah. Oh my gosh. When my oldest son graduated high school, I was asked to give the keynote speech to his class, which I was very worried about because, you know, your kids get so embarrassed about the things you're going to tell them or their friends, but to tell like the entire class and the parent body. So um, I prepared and prepared for months a speech. And my main message to the not-so-kids anymore was... You have to know what things you are never willing to put on the negotiating table. And those things are usually the things that you feel the most vulnerable about, the things that you are most embarrassed about, the things that you get asked to change all the time, but are the things that you have to work on the hardest and that will make you the proudest. And that are easier for people to say, oh, change them. And I was asked to change my accent. I was asked to, like when I was pitched to other places, I was asked to take classes to change my accent. People were worried that my accent was too thick and that people would not understand what I'm saying. 
I was asked to like change the content, you know, like Mexican, maybe too ethnic or too niche. Would you want to do like an international or pan Latin show? You know, many things that were to me just very undoable, you know, to for me to look in the mirror and have no recognizable accent, it would be like not finding myself. So I always say you have to make decisions. It's very hard to make decisions all the time, of course, you know, you never know if what you're deciding is right or wrong. But if there's something that you think you will not be able to live with in the future, as my grandfather always said, you know, the only thing that you leave when you're gone is dust and your name. Like, what will you not be able to live with, you know? And so looking in the mirror and not recognizing yourself, I think, must be one of the most agonizing things. Because when you have a show and it's on for one year or two years and you're able to have it because you change your name, you change your accent and you change the content of what you're proud about, what you want to share. Once the system spits you out, who are you going to look into the mirror so and it was not an easy decision at first you know like to say and then I looked at the people that's why I think it's great to have people that you admire and I looked at the people that I admired in the line of work of where I was and it is people who have heavy accents who have strange sounding voices and who stuck to the content that they wanted to share with the world and so The ironic thing is that usually are those things that make you stand about, that make you feel embarrassed about yourself. I mean, I was always very embarrassed about my accent because when I moved to the U.S., I could not string a sentence in English, L. And I kept asking my husband, ¿Cómo se dice? ¿Cómo se dice? Like, how do you say this, that, this, that? And I knew I had a very heavy accent, but now, 15 years later, People recognize me because of my accent and because of the sound of my voice. So I think you have to stick to who you truly are. And those things that make you different and that people may ask you to change are going to leave an imprint of what you may be remembered by. That's great advice. That's it right there. Authenticity, integrity, legacy. All of those things wrapped up into one good, sound piece of advice. Well, I hope that's helping someone out there in the world. Patty Yenich is out here dropping microphones, shutting down podcasts with that. I love it. Um, That's so great. Thank you so much, Patty. It's it's been um, really, really um, beautiful to get to know you more personally. And hear about your journey is very inspiring. So lovely to connect. You are so beautiful. Such a beautiful, lovely person. Thank you. And a treat to connect. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be having our Emmy celebratory dinner in Mexico. You just drop me a line. Let me know when you're booking your flight and I'll be there. I'm showing up to celebrate you. We will do. We will do. (laughs) If not here, there. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real and unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, L. Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Terrence Johnson and Caitlin Kelleher. 
Our producers include Hen Margolis, Caroline Rickert, and Yumi Araki. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Additional engineering by Chester Guasta. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Jennifer Cuccidi is our intern. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Escoffier and Samuel Adams. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.